Welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dolphinet, and on this episode, we welcome Bert Cockley, former New South Wales fast bowler and a current member of the Dallas Mustangs squad in minor league cricket, the T20 franchise competition, which will start its second season on Saturday, June 25th, and it'll run through the last weekend in August, where the finals will be held once again in Morrisville, North Carolina. But Bert Cockley, not only is he a player for the Dallas Mustangs, formerly known as the Irving Mustangs in their inaugural season last year in minor league cricket, but Bert is somebody who's been heavily involved as a strength and conditioning coach for the USA national teams over the last several years. So he's got a very unique perspective. We've never had a strength and conditioning coach on the podcast before, and he has a lot of insights. But before we get to that, I want to first thank some new Patreons, some new Patriots, and an Eagle. Right at the top of the list of the new Patreon subscribers, Jason Gaddies. Jason, thank you so much for your support. Jason is an Eagle now, and you can become an Eagle too if you go to patreon.com and sign up for as little as $3 a month. You can become a Patriot, or you can give a little bit more and become an Eagle. You get different benefits with each level of support that you provide for the podcast. But Jason, I know, is an ardent supporter of the USA national team. He's always following along the USA broadcasts on Willow TV or ICC TV or wherever the matches are being shown around the world that USA is participating in. I know he's up there in Michigan following along the national team on a regular basis. So it's great to have Jason's support now for the podcast as well. Thank you so much, Jason, for becoming an Eagle. Also, I want to thank Daniel Beswick from the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Daniel, down under, does so many things for the associate cricket community along with Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner, who do a tremendous job hosting that podcast. And if you haven't checked it out yet, by all means, I encourage you to do so. The Emerging Cricket Podcast, it's been going for a few years now. They cover not just things on the American cricket scene, but all around the associate cricket world. And Daniel Beswick does a hell of a lot to promote associate cricket. So, Bez, thanks for your support by becoming a patriot on the podcast. And also, James Hayward. Uh, James, I believe, is based in Texas. I'm pretty sure he was at some of the matches that were played in Texas on the most recent ODI tour that USA had when Moosa Cricket Stadium, who was also a sponsor of the podcast, became the 213th ODI cricket ground in the world. And it was great to see so many fans turn out to Moosa Stadium to support USA and the other teams. There were a lot of Scotland fans there. There are a hell of a lot of Nepal fans. I'm sure nobody missed out on that. But you also had people fly out from the UAE to support the UAE toured as well, and I even saw one or two Oman jerseys in the crowd as well. So everybody had some sort of support in Texas, and I know James Hayward was one of those fans who came out to Moosa Stadium and showed his support for USA, and I'm very grateful now, James, that you are a Patriot supporter of the podcast, and if you want to be like James Hayward, you want to be like Daniel Beswick, you want to be like Jason Gaddies, please go to Patreon, become a Patriot to support the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, again, for as little as $3 a month, go to www.patreon.com today. Everything that's contributed helps keep the podcast running on an episode-by-episode basis. And I also have to thank the sponsors for this podcast. They are so valuable, and we can't put this podcast on without their support. First, again, Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of texas and now the 213th odi cricket ground in the world forever after that's how it will be known they hosted the first ever odis in the lone star state at the end of may and throughout the early part of june as well go to www.moosestadium.com 
For more information, that's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster, an ICC-designated official travel agent for the 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia this October. Crickbuster is your one-stop shop for all of your touring plans if you're heading down under. Visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And finally... Again, the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. The Dream Cricket Store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements. Anything you need, whether it's bats, helmets, gloves, pads, or jerseys, go to dreamcricketstore.com today and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. So again, go to www.dreamcricketstore.com and take advantage of those offers today. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm joined by USA Strength and Conditioning Coach and also player for the Irving Mustangs in minor league cricket competition put on by Ace and Major League Cricket, and most recently at the Houston Challenge organized by MLC. You were one of the head coaches of the MLC regional squads, the central squad, which was captained by Corey Anderson. Welcome to the show, Bert Cockley. Bert, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to, um, I've seen it getting around on social media, so it's nice to um, make my debut. You're a man who wears many, many hats. Today you're wearing a Lone Star State hat. You've got your Texas hat on. You've, you've worn, uh, I've seen you wearing Kansas hats, I think, in the past. You're somebody who's worn a number of hats on the franchise scene in Australia and yep. in state cricket. Uh, how is life now with, with your current Texas hat on in the Dallas Metroplex area? It's good. It, it's funny. I never thought I'd end up here. It's bizarre how it all ended up. But, um, yeah, I'm living in the U.S. now, and we were up in Kansas. So that's where my wife's family's from. And we were living in Perth and I'd finished playing cricket ended due to injuries and we we're just hanging out in Perth and doing our thing. And then her dad was sick. So we basically sold everything we owned and moved to the US. I applied for my visa and we we're living in Kansas for three years and went to school and, you know, we we're ticking boxes and, you know, upskilling ourselves. And we moved here, what was it, nine months ago. I feel like I'm a lot more Texan than Kansas. In what way? Elaborate, please. Have you gone out and, and bought a gun yet? Guns, plural, singular? Do you, uh, do you have a big t- state no. Texas flag hanging in your backyard? I was given a little by my father-in-law. He gave me a little, I don't even know what it is. It's like a little rifle. I haven't even loaded it yet. Don't own a gun. Bird, there's uh, nothing more useless than an unloaded gun. I, know, I, mean, I wouldn't even have one. It. it needs some bullets. If not, then what are you doing with it? Well, I keep telling everyone I've got boomerangs pull my boomerangs out <laughs> no 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 it's a i feel like i fit in a lot more there's more cricket we're in kansas there, there's no cricket so obviously coming from a i grew up with cricket played cricket in kansas there was there's nothing around so bert i dispute that i've played cricket in kansas that's a lie come on bert you didn't find it it was there no. it, was, it was looking for you bert i'd heard about it i'd never ventured out they're basically just playing on baseball outfields and which is fine. Like for me, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going out and doing that. <laughs> That's a, like nothing I've played, how I've played cricket. I like cricket, but not that much, but Dallas is good. It's obviously, it's a big hub. There's a lot of cricket. There's lots of exciting stuff happening. So that's pretty much drove us down this way. 
There's a story on, on the Cricket Australia website from several years ago, written by Martin Smith, Rebuilding Bert, How Cricket Changed yeah. Life. And it goes through part of the story of how you wound up in America and in Kansas. So for people who haven't read that, by all means, I would encourage them to read that and find a little bit more about Bert Cockley's background because it's quite a fascinating story on a personal level and also on a cricket level. But it tells how you came to the U.S. as part of the story. And like you said, you wound up in Kansas, your wife, is from Kansas, and I think in part of the story, it talks about you met her at the IPL in India. She was an IPL cheerleader, uh, and that's how you crossed yeah. paths. It was uh, Champions League. Yeah, Champions League 2009. Met her on the last day. So New South Wales, we made the final against Trinidad and Tobago, and I was walking the boundaries, running drinks, and she was on a podium. <laughs> we noticed each other. And didn't say anything. And then it wasn't until the after party I went and said hi. And then that was it. The rest is history. And she came out to Australia for a holiday and about four months later. And that was it. We did long distance for three years. And because um, I was playing cricket and my job in Australia, I'd, I could only come over during the off season. So every off season, I'd come to the US up in Kansas. And then every school holiday, she'd come out to Australia. So long distance, three hard, which was pretty difficult. And then once she graduated from KU, she moved out to Australia. And that was at the same time I'd moved from New South Wales to Western Australia. Now, I, I've got a question. As somebody who's married to a KU graduate and you went to KU for your postgraduate degree, you've got uh, a degree in, what is it? Strength and conditioning, sports uh, science? What's, what's your- Sports science. Sports science, sports science degree. Science. And it's, a, what is it? A master's, a, a PhD? Masters. Yeah. Master's. Masters from KU. Now answer me this, because it's been something that's confounded me as somebody who went to Creighton University, which is the neighboring state in Omaha, Nebraska. And there were sometimes we traveled to Kansas for various events. And there are enough kids from the state of Kansas who attended Creighton. Nobody could ever answer this for me. It's called the University of Kansas, but the nickname is KU. I know. What's up with that? I know. I always say Kansas University. And which is wrong. University. I know it's the other way. I, I always get wrong, get it wrong as well. So if I'm writing something, I go to, I went to Kansas University, not the University of Kansas. I don't know. The it's mystery continues. Head. You, you never found out during your time there. Nobody and I'm going to keep getting it wrong as well. <laughs> I'll keep getting it wrong. Nobody was able to unlock the secret. Oh, well, somebody else. Maybe there'll be another KU graduate uh, in the future will come on the podcast who can explain it, Bert. But, it sums me up a bit. I pay attention, but not that much. Well, <laughs> I, I was at Nebraska for four plus years and I never was able to unlock the mystery. And yeah. Yeah, no. Very, very strange. Well, let me ask you this. Can you explain Rock Chalk Jayhawk? What is the what is the origin of that? As somebody who works in the athletic department, I hope you know a little bit about Rock Chalk. No. But <laughs> change it. You actually got me there. I've never actually thought about that. It has. It must have something to do with the, the rock, like the whatever is the. I might have to get my wife in here. <laughs> I'm making stuff up. I have uh, no for idea. people for people who don't know the, the cricket vocal aren't familiar. Rock chalk Jayhawk is the chant. Yeah. That goes on at Kansas athletic events. It's very Been there forever. Been going it's, forever. It's not, I can't really call it a chant. It's more of like a slow like. Rock, <laughs> have you been to a basketball game? I have not. I mean, I've seen plenty of games on TV. Unbelievable. I've been to the state of origin in Australia at the Sydney Olympic Stadium when they just freshly built it. 
after the 2000 Olympics. So before the Olympics had actually been held, the stadium was built and leading into the Olympics, they played a state of origin game there. And it was unbelievable. Full house, state of origin, New South Wales versus Queensland. That's probably the best atmosphere I've ever experienced. And then we got tickets to a KU game. And all I kept hearing about it's the loudest place on the planet. And they were right. It was unbelievable. Like the atmosphere, the singing, the traditions, it was cool. Like it was really cool. And so that started like laying some seeds like early on that like I'd love to go here one day. Like I hadn't thought about going doing a sports science degree, but the traditions and everything about KU and going to college, like I never felt that in Australia. Like I never felt I'm going to go to the University of Sydney and I never felt that I was going to be a carpenter builder. That's what I was going to be. I was an apprentice when I was 18 in construction and never crossed my mind to go to university. So when I was coming over and we went to a basketball game, I'm like, this is cool. Like whatever this is, is really cool. And it was loud. So they were singing rock, or rock chalk, Jayhawk. And there's another chant they were singing. I didn't know it, but I was trying my best to keep up with everyone. But it was, I think it is one of the, or the loudest place, isn't it? In terms of the college venues, it's, there's always arguments. If you tell somebody about going to see a game at Duke or, or North Carolina, yeah. they'll say they're the loudest. Or if you ask them about, I don't know, Alabama football or Michigan football or Ohio State football, they're going to argue they're the loudest. 100,000 people in a stadium. And college football is, is well, very parochial and very unique. KU. KU football is not loud. Yes. KU football is not loud because <laughs> nobody goes to the game. It's 100 for, people that for, go there. For a good reason. Yeah, 100 <laughs> people because – they're one of the worst football programs in college football history. They had a, a yeah. very brief stretch before you got there, Bert, where Mark Mangino was the head coach. And they went, I think they got as high as number three in the country one year. Yeah. This is back in, I think, the early 2000s. Went to a BCS bowl game. I think that was when Tyrod Taylor was their quarterback. And I think Tyrod Taylor also played on the basketball team. But uh, Tyrod Taylor has been a sometime start in the NFL. He's been bouncing around with a bunch of teams. He was with the Bills mm-hmm. and the Chargers and... Uh, I think he's, he's down near you. You're in your neck of the woods, sort of, a few hours yeah. away in Houston, Houston Texans. Okay. And it was when he was there that they had this very brief but magical run in college football. But before and after, they've done absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah, I remember I was so excited. I was, I was an intern. So I interned with KU Basketball, strength and conditioning for it was maybe six months under Andrew Hootie. And then I wanted to go over to football because I played rugby league and it was a bit more down my alley with contact sport and strength and power and contacted the head of strength and conditioning there, Zach Woodford. He was like, yep, come in. And so I was in, I interned there for about a year and a half and it was awesome. Nothing like I've experienced in sport. Like in Australia, you don't have a hundred squad members (laughs) and rotating groups of 40 people in the gym at 6am with music turned up full ball, just blowing your eardrums out. It's unique college football strength and conditioning very unique like i'd never run a program that way like with my guys but it's very college football very unique very niche it was a great experience to get to know everyone how things happen game days the whole traditions got to walk down ku from the big bell tower down through the crowd onto the field so it was really cool it's a great experience but i kind of realized that how i've been shaped and molded through sport and interactions with cricket and rugby league college sports very unique it's a different different beast oh a few questions i want to ask about this one yeah 
I got an appreciation for how unique college football is in America when I spent a semester abroad in Australia. So I went to Macquarie University for a semester in 2005, which is where I wound up discovering cricket. And that was during the 2005 Ashes. So it was kind of a fortunate time for me to go down there and learn cricket. But when I was at Macquarie doing a semester there as a journalism student, one of the first things I did when I got there, I went to the campus bookstore and bought a Macquarie Uni hooded jumper. Hey, I want to show my school pride and like, this is what we do in America. And I think I was one of a handful of kids on the Macquarie campus who had a Macquarie t-shirt because I I learned pretty quickly, like you're seen as a dork. uh, You're wearing that on campus. It's like, what, what kind of loser? It's like going to a rock concert where, you know, you're wearing an ACDC shirt to an ACDC concert. You don't do that. It's not the etiquette. And you know, it's a funny culture. I've I've had many conversations about this as Australians. We're two very different cultures. And in America, it's, it's encouraged to do your own thing, be the tall poppy, self-promote. It's like encouraged. In Australia, it's don't do that. You're not bigger than the crowd. Like get back down here. If anyone starts acting like they're getting too big for their boots, like in the sport, it'd be like, stop it, cut it, cut it out. I remember like early on, like I came through a funny transition because social media started to come out as I was like my first year in like, professional cricket and we we it's like no one knew how to use instagram yet and it was a thing like no public displays you know of emotions don't be putting up a picture with your girlfriends no like self-promotion of yourself and like so everyone would be like bringing it down so you couldn't put up a picture of your scorecard which everyone does in the u.s <laughs> no photos or videos of yourself doing weightlifting sessions nope. in the gym nope. you'd get get shredded you'd just the boys would be into you so there was this fine line of like what was accepted but it's a funny culture, Australia. Like, no one wore, like at KU, I went to um, ECU, Edith Cowan University. No one's walking around with big ECU blazers and proud of, of you know, ECU. It's, but coming to KU, you're like, you want to wear a KU hat. You want to wear KU merchandise. But again, part of that is, is also a function of the fact that college sports is, itself is very unique to America. You don't have right. like NCAA equivalent football it's just club sport for for you know whether it's rugby rugby league afl cricket on on an australian university they, they don't have that you don't have an equivalent of a usc playing a north carolina in a national t- tournament or anything like that and that's not the feeder system obviously to feed into professional sports leagues there it's a you know it's not just australia it's like every other country's like that uk doesn't have that europe doesn't have that it doesn't yeah. happen in south america africa anywhere else so I didn't really appreciate that until I left America yeah. for that semester and then I was like wow like it's- it took me a while to adjust to it the whole system here and because obviously I came through the sporting system in Australia so it's club-based like I played some sport for my school but it wasn't like that's my thing and the school demanded you have to play afternoon sport for the school that wasn't the case I'd, I always played club sport outside of school which everyone does in Australia. And then that way, that's the path to get into professional cricket or rugby league. But here, seeing how it's school, they want to get a scholarship into college and then they'll play college and then they'll get in the draft and make the big leagues. And it was funny when I was at KU, all the guys thought they were making the big leagues. So I'd be there making their smoothies, making $0 an hour at whatever, 6 a.m. for these guys. And it's funny, like they'd be like, what are you doing here? You know, and you're like, I'm doing an internship. I'm trying to get better. <laughs> I'm trying to improve myself. And they're like, not doing this stuff. I'm going to make the big leagues and make the big bucks. It's like, but what if that doesn't happen? You know, what if that doesn't happen? And the, the, for me, it was 
the system I've come out of, like I experienced like losing a contract and it's a hard industry. So that's why I went and did my sports science degree. But for these guys, they're like making the big leagues. I'm going to make the NFL. I'm going to make millions. And so, because I was a bit older than the other interns I'm, and I've experienced professional sport, I was like, but what if it doesn't? And you could end up in wherever making nine bucks an hour. So it was funny, the, the system, but I also seen the system as there's a lot of opportunities for other sports, like emerging sports, like rugby. So NFL, when I was KU, I thought most of these guys, if they don't make it in any kind of NFL post KU, you would say rugby and they're really good, the sevens. So a lot of the running backs and I thought they could somehow scout them into rugby and the USA rugby team should be dominant. If you think of how many guys out of the NFL could transition and it's an easy transition for them, but it's never understood how that doesn't happen. That there's not this transfer of plays into the rugby, rugby scene because it's their college careers end, but that's it. Their whole sporting career ends and they're 24 where club base, you can play to you 35. I've thought this about this a lot as well. And it's, there's some parallels to cricket in a sense too, where in terms of trying to recruit athletes from other sports, everybody always says, Oh, there's good people from baseball, but I feel like it can go way beyond baseball. I feel like tennis in particular could be golf, could be ice hockey. There's so many other sports where the skills and the technical aspects transition to cricket that are not limited to baseball specifically, but there's this like fine line where somebody from another sport they can't be too good because then they are going to be professional in that sport but then they can't be too bad because then if yeah. they're too bad then they're just not interested altogether and they've like you said they, they give up and they go into a professional life in some other capacity yeah and so it's like where do you find that that thin layer of guys who are good and still fit conditioned and open to making a transition? Yeah. And motivated. That's another thing. Yeah. And a sport that has done this really well is Aussie rules. I'm assuming you're aware Aussie rules, they do yeah, the yeah. scouting combine. Well, they'll recruit fringe level basketball players and guys from other sports who they're not going to go to the NBA and they might not even go play professionally in Europe or Australia or somewhere else, but they've got the, the physical uh, traits mm. where there might be six, seven, six, eight, six, nine. They might've been, a bench player who was a good re rebounder, but not a good shooter or a good shot blocker or something else. They've got the agility. They've got the body frame. They just never played Aussie rules before. And there's the example of Mason Cox, who a couple of years ago was recruited again and played for Oklahoma state basketball was a bench player. I think he averaged like four points a game, very limited time off the bench, but the Aussie rules football scouts said, Hey, this guy's six foot 10. Yeah. We don't have six foot 10 players growing on trees in Australia. This guy's six foot 10, but he's not good enough to play in the NBA. And, but he was good enough at some point to get recruited, to get a scholarship to play college basketball, which itself is pretty good. Yeah. And let's see if we, if we can introduce him to the aspects of lost rules and Mason Cox within a couple of years, got a full fledged contract with, I believe it was Collingwood and mm -hmm. played. And I think was in the starting lineup for a grand final and his story has gone viral when it happened and he was fast tracked to citizenship. He's, he's an Aussie citizen, dual citizen now, and he's determined to, to stay in Australia for good because he's fully embraced Aussie rules football. And, they, and similarly, likewise, they've embraced him. And it's, it's not this, Oh, this, 
this crazy American who, you know, he's never touched a, a Sharon in his life. Yeah. And what the hell is he going to know about Aussie rules football? They're open-minded enough. Yeah. That they want to scout the athletic talent that exists somewhere. And if a guy's athletic enough, it doesn't matter if he's never seen a red Sharon in his life and doesn't know the scoring rules or anything else about Aussie rules. So we'll, we'll teach him. Mm-hmm. And Hey, if we keep it simple, all we tell this guy, when the ball goes up in the air, you jump as high as you can and catch, catch it. it. Get make a mark, you know. What do you what's the phrasing? Make a mark, collect a mark. What is it? No, it's it's just a mark, I think. It's just a mark. Okay. It's a mark, yeah. Right there, mark, catch. <laughs> you know, you know, and then just run, get yourself in position down the field. And you know, it's in the, the rebounding aspect, the basketball, you can see it. I don't understand obviously a lot about Aussie Rules football, but just the body positioning, the the ability to like box out like you would to yeah. rebound, where you just use your body frame to shield the guy when yeah. you're trying to go up for a mark so he can't get get past you or, or outmaneuver you and you can understand why they would recruit somebody in so that way 10 and tall and everyone yeah and just you know the weight and but he's 6'10 with agility and 6'10 yeah. with jumping ability he's not a 6'10 you know oaf he's not 6'10 overweight he's 6'10 with a lanky enough frame where you can jump and uh Hopefully, theoretically, not have the orthopedic issues with knees and ankles. Uh, and he's, he did it at a young enough age, 22, 23, 24, where he doesn't have the wear and tear. And I would hope, yeah, like you said, that rugby can recruit some of these guys from the NFL at, at that similar age where they don't have that wear and tear. And to mm-hmm. a, a lesser extent, they have tried to do this with some of the guys. Carlin Isles was like this big social media phenom a couple of years ago because he was, I don't know if he played Division Two or Division Three football or he was uh lower tier college football player but he was super fast and he ran track too and he I've was seen that guy yeah and yeah. He, you know they they just flicking the ball on rugby sevens and he'd be just shooting up the the sideline side making tries left and right and perry baker too perry baker I, I think has got a similar background perry baker's i think he's been world rugby sevens player of the year at least once maybe twice where I think he had a college football background of some kind before transitioning to rugby. So they have done it with a little bit of limited success. But there's scope for more, and I, I would yeah. hope at some point the cricket administrators in the U.S. can do it with some athletes. And like I said, it doesn't have to be limited to baseball, softball. There's, you know, Erica Randler, you've yeah. dealt with the U.S. women's team. Her primary sport was field hockey. She yeah. was not a softball player. She did play softball, but that wasn't her primary sport. Her primary yeah. sport collegiately was field hockey. And you see the likes of Jonty Rhodes being a field mm-hmm. hockey player. And I think Brendan McCollum may have played some field hockey as well. And you, you see this type of shots that they played that yeah, some that. of it comes from field hockey. And Geetika Kadali was a tennis player for I don't mm-hmm. know how many years before she latched on to cricket. So there's you can and you can see in, in the athletic skills that some of these girls had developed who are up and coming the teenagers in particular. One of the things that stood out to me, Bert, I'm going on a rant here, but in Mexico. You were there in Mexico City. Yeah. The teenagers, the teenagers yeah. who were all the American born and raised teenage girls in the warmups one day, they were throwing your KU football. They were throwing the American football better than I've seen the men's players on the men's yeah. national team throw a football. So you see the athletic skills that are developed in the kids who are growing up, going to the high school system and the, being part of the athletic facilities in the yeah. athletic environment in America. And the, the women's team is proof that you recruit young athletes and you yeah. get them into cricket and they choose cricket over other sports, but they've been exposed to and played other sports. You've got a gold mine of athletic talent in this country that you can seize on. Well, this is what I love about the US. I, we'd always bag out the US in Australia, but it's a, it's a really good system for development. So going through 
high school or junior junior college, there is a strength and conditioning like pathway, and they play all these sports. So they're and this is the you know fundamental rule with any kind of development. The best athletes are the ones who played multiple sports. So there's this transference of they could have been a javelin throw and then they go, I'm going to start learning fast bowling. They've got really good mechanics and then they just got to learn to bowl more balls and hit the spot on the wicket or whatever sports they just transference into. So that's why like, a lot of the kids in the, in the US, they're just tunnel vision and they're all 10 years old doing cricket every day. I can't stand that. I run across it. You run across it. Everybody runs across it. And when I've done the limited junior coaching that I have, and I asked some of the parents I, I've dealt with, I do a lot of fielding practice and fielding training with kids in the 10 to 13 year old range, 14 year old range. And I asked them, you know, what else do you do during the week when you're not training cricket? And they, they say, Oh, that's all you, all I care about is cricket. Yeah. All I want to do is cricket. I say, no, please play other sports. Yeah. You have to play other sports. You cannot just play cricket. Like, and it shows like, so the, you can tell the kids who are playing other sports, like a Rahul Jarawala who plays mm. baseball has played heart varsity baseball in california for his school team steven taylor grew up playing other sports he played basketball he played football but of the recent kids rahul jarawal is a great example of that and gitika they played other sports and the athleticism that they demonstrate you can you can pick it out immediately yeah. uh and i try to tell the parents like please like you know gitika's parents like don't let her stop playing tennis if she wants to keep playing tennis like encourage her to keep playing tennis as well as cricket because there are so many skills players I like her, i was yeah. i was like 18 when i actually so I'd play rugby league and cricket, but then in amongst all that, I'd play touch football. Uh, I'd play sport at school. I'd ride my bike every day and to ride to and from cricket practice because my dad wouldn't drive me. So I'd ride to and from practice and ride to the gym. So I was doing a lot, but I have these kids that come to my garage gym and they're basically doing cricket 12 months of the year. And so it was the off season. I had them in the gym and I was like, so what do you do? What do you, what do you guys do? And they're like, well, We'd gone to practice today. And so every day they're hitting cricket balls or bowling. And I'm like, guys, you need to actually like stop. You need to like take some time out and just refresh because you've got like literally like eight months of a season to come. And they're like, well, it's not actually a season. There's two parts to the season. There's like, there's this winter season and then in the summer season. I'm like, so when do you have a time off? I'm like, well, we don't. But just bewildered. Like, I didn't know that. So I'm learning a lot just by living here that the ecosystem set up in a way that you can play as much cricket as you want, but also it's setting up. I feel like it's setting up a lot of the kids for, for failure in the sense that there's no off season to it. So they don't go and play another sport. They're just year round cricket and they're not actually going away from cricket and then getting the urge. Like I'm excited for cricket season and I'm really motivated and excited, but it's the same. It's the same 12 months of the year. Well, cycle. it's not just the, physical transference skills you use the word transference um that you develop from yeah playing other sports and like you said the best athletes in america and in the world in a lot of places they're, they're multi-sport athletes i mean it's you know it's extremely common for the, again for the people who don't listen or watch regularly but all the best athletes who are who are highly recruited for the nfl or you know college football scholarships whatever you know they'll play college football in the, in the fall basketball mm -hmm. in the in the winter and then baseball or lacrosse in the spring, you know, perfect Kyler Murray with the Arizona Cardinals. Kyler mm -hmm. Murray was the first overall draft pick in the NFL, but he was also, I think the sixth overall draft pick in the major league baseball draft for the Oakland athletics. He was a yeah. phenomenal baseball player as an outfielder and incredible base running speed um, at Oklahoma. And the athletics were like devastated when he decided that he wanted to go 
back to Oklahoma to try and keep playing football. Mm-hmm. And Joe Maurer is another great example. Joe Maurer uh, was a first overall draft pick for the Minnesota Twins about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, he was a high school catcher drafted out of high school, but he was also an All-American high school. He was he was the top. Not only was he top the top high school baseball recruit in the country, he was also the top high school quarterback recruit in the mm-hmm. country. Marion Jones, the gold medal track athlete from from America, the sprinter, um, before she was disgraced and caught up in the in the steroid scandal. Yeah, yeah. Um, she went to North Carolina and she was on the national championship team at North Carolina as as a starting point guard yeah. before she went off to a, having a track career. There's a few of the guys in the system that they're doing track and I love it. Yeah. So there's two different kind of groups. The ones that in our system that are, they go to school and they're part of a track program. It's there's athletic development incorporated into their program. So they, there is a gym and kind of running. So I'm like, do it. You good. I trust it. But then there's the ones who are just, they're not doing anything like that at school. And then they've got to follow the program, but they've got to be self-motivated to follow it. So we're quite fortunate. The ones who are doing really well in all of our testing, they're the ones who are doing like track and field or they're caught up in some kind of sport at high school and they by product of the system, they're naturally developing all their athletic qualities just by participating in their sport. So if we, if we had most of our plays, like do a track and track and field program at high school, we're good. We're ticking the boxes of like speed, conditioning, power. If they're not doing that, then it's like, we need them to be really motivated <laughs> to get to the gym, to get to a field and run. And But it's not just that. I mean, the other aspect, you, you talked about transference and all these athletic skills you develop from other sports. But for me, I, I would argue just as important, if not more important, is the social skills you develop by playing team sports in particular and, yeah, and some yeah. of these other sports, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, because not just on the field during the course of play, but in the training aspects of cricket, cricket is an intensely individualistic yeah. sport whether you're bowling or batting, you know, somebody who's in the nets batting for two, three, four, five, six hours, they're just batting alone. It, there's no interaction with a teammate when you're batting. When um, you say that, yeah, I've, I've said this a lot, that I've been more shaped and molded by playing rugby league than I have with cricket. So cricket, it's a funny sport. It's, it's all about you. Here's the ball, but running and bowl as quick as you can. And then I create the tone. So I've always felt my I guess personality as a bowler was shaped by rugby league aggressive contact you know your mates are always around you I'm only as good as the person next to me and if he can't tackle next to me then you know so it's very I was like a bit like a bunch of like warriors kind of thing and we're all in it together and fighting and I love that mindset and in cricket I tried to do the same thing when I was bowling like I wanted to set the tone for my teammates and if something happened with my teammate I'd you know, try and set the tone with the ball or be aggressive. And that only came from playing rugby league. But if I had no other experience in other sport, I'd be shaped by cricket. And unless you've got a good bunch of senior players shaping and molding you who are mentors, setting the tone, it can be really bad. Like I've played a couple of games here in, in, in Dallas and it's <laughs> the worst cricket. Like it's just horrible cricket. There's no standards. And so if, as a youth kid, when I was coming up in Australia, it was, you know, you don't step out of line. There was this culture in place of standards and behavior. And here it's very much a culture of like, I just turn up and play cricket and I leave. There's nothing about a club. I'm a part of a club that's bigger than myself. And I'm just a part of this train at the moment. And I'm about to step off, but we're keeping this train moving forward and the legacy of it. But I felt that when I played cricket in Australia here, it's like, 
I go to cricket on a Saturday and leave. And I'm not caring about the young 15-year-old who I need to mentor and develop so he can open a bowling for, the, for our club one day. So there's a lot of things that are missing from, which kind of sucks whenever I have these conversations because I'm shaped and molded by my experiences in Australia. But then everyone who, who's only ever played cricket in America, they don't know any different. So yep. they're like, well, this is cricket. And it's like, well, it's not. And it's very different to how I've experienced cricket and played cricket and how I was shaped and molded. And I wish a lot of the kids here would experience a summer in England and Australia, what, what a club system looks like. I'll go on a bit of a tangent here. I, I, could, I actually wish there was a, a grading system where players every weekend were actually getting graded on their skills. And if you're not up to par, you go back to second grade. And if you're not good enough for second grade, you go down to third grade. And so you're constantly being assessed and judged. So then by the time you actually get into the national team, you're used to that process week in, week out. You've got to go to club practice twice a week. You've got to be a good person. You just can't be a poor person and play cricket every weekend. And there's no consequences for that. Like in Australia, if you're a poor person and you're not coming to training, you're not playing cricket. And, uh, you say poor person. I think the more accurate term in Australia is if you're a shit bloke. Shit bloke. bloke. That is a part of the one of the things on no shit bloke rules like you're not going to fit in so it's a funny like it it hurts like so that's how i've been shaped and molded whether that's a good or bad thing but i've got to like adjust my thinking at times as well in the u.s just because it's not the same there's not a example there's not a dallas premier league cricket association there's two leagues and they compete against each other <laughs> and then anyone can then if i don't like those two leagues i'll go start my own league Yep. Um, so it's very political and but how do you fix it I don't I don't know but when I because I'm a strength and conditioning coach and all I care about is development how do we develop young kids to be elite level cricketers through this system so we still got a ways to go a lot of the things you talked about winning habits developing winning personality and again it's it's not limited to just how you bat a ball but you brought it up being a good person and mm-hmm. having positive contributions to make just socially or, or just beyond your batting and bowling skills, which is something that's overlooked. And I, I do want to go back to the Kansas point one more time to get some insight on into this Kansas for people who are not aware, just won the national championship in basketball, beat North Carolina in the final. And you said you worked with the Kansas basketball team for mm-hmm. a six month stretch. You, know, you named the strength and conditioning coach you worked under, but getting a chance to be around Bill Self, the head coach who's been there for, I don't know, 20 or so years and has now won two national championships. So he's he's got a Hall of Fame resume. He's created this incredible legacy at a school, which itself has this long-lasting legacy of mm-hmm. college basketball tradition. What are the things that you observed from Bill Self or soaked up from Bill Self that you applied to your own methods if any that you saw as as part of the reason why he has been such a successful coach whether that's basketball or any other sport well i think it's the support staff they have in place so andrew hootie's been there for about 15 years so that they work together for 15 seasons so she was a big cog in his overarching what he was trying to establish within the team and then she was like an extension of that so in the gym there were certain things like they were very respectful. They'd always be like, I, I never got said coach in Australia. Like they'd be like, thanks coach. I'm like, you can call me Bert. Like, 
that that terminology made was really strange. So they're very respectable. They called you coach. The players always called you coach at Kansas, and you weren't yeah. used to that in Australia. Yeah, I never it was never a term I I'd heard. I'd never even called my own coaches in professional cricket for eight years. Said coach, <laughs> like Justin Lang was my coach, and I'd say g'day mate every day. Hey mate, I'd never be like hey coach, and it was that separation. It was very we're a bit more relaxed as a culture, but he was in charge and we knew that where I think the system here is very much, there's a separation and the terms are used. So coach, they're all good humans. They're good people. When they were into workout, they worked out, they got it done. I didn't have too much to do with like the in dressing room stuff when he was having in-person meetings and, but the, how the program was, it was, there wasn't like many faults. There wasn't any issues when you went into the gym with the players, you wouldn't, outside looking in you wouldn't think there was any issues with the team there's no infighting there was no there's no one disgruntled they'd get in the gym they'd work out they're all teammates they would pat each other on the back and they'll support each other and then boom they go to the next thing so it was really cool where cricket's a very different sport like in snc so guys can come and go different personalities very unique but i didn't get to see a whole lot in his like how he set it up set things up with meetings and I was more around Andrea, who was in the gym. There was no complaining, no swearing. Like the tone was when you get in there, you train. You got to say coach to any of us. Everyone put their weights away. The gym was left immaculate once they left and they had to clean it up. So just those little things that you're building up a culture then transfers into whatever they do on the court. But he was, he was a, he's still amazing. Like he's, what he's been able to do at KU. And it's funny because I hated Lawrence, Kansas. It was boring, right? So why is it that Lawrence, Kansas has this amazing basketball program? People aren't going there to live in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, are they? They're not going there to hang out on Mass Street. The basketball program itself is amazing at developing talent. So if you want to make the NBA, there's a couple of schools you're going to go to and like KU is pretty, pretty hype on that list, right? So yeah, what, what they've got going there and, in developing players and for the NBA is top shelf. That to me is part of the miracle of Kansas basketball and mm. to a lesser extent, Kansas state football uh, several years ago when they had Bill Snyder as their head coach and Kansas state went to some major bowl games under Bill Snyder and were able to develop some high end NFL town is the fact that in both places, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence is for people who are not aware of Kansas geography. Lawrence is like halfway between Kansas City and Topeka, which are like the two biggest cities in Kansas. And then Manhattan is like an hour or so west of Topeka. Um, but there's an awful lot of nothing in between yeah. Kansas City and Topeka. And you it's could like say, well, minutes from Kansas City, <laughs> and it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, like it's, it's it's funny. Yeah, and and because of that, like you said. I, I've been to Lawrence, been in that general area for when I was traveling through for cricket and also traveled through it for Creighton baseball activities when I was working in the athletic department at Creighton while I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to appreciate unless you've actually been there. The fact that you would wonder to yourself, how the hell do they recruit athletes to come out here? Yeah. Because, yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it, it, just little day-to-day living things like the winters there are brutal. Yeah. The winters there are freezing cold, and it's not just the snow, it's the wind that whips up. You get out there in the wind chill, and it's it's uh, unbearable at times. 
you'll it'll be zero degree weather and 30 mile an hour winds and the wind chill will be minus 20 and it's just god awful so i'd come from like living on the beach like so i lived in sydney newcastle and then perth then lawrence kansas and rough like i had all- i never had allergies and i started breaking out in like hives first first winter i had over there and like it was hard experienced like first time seasonal depression I'm like what do we do it's snowing it's cold when do we get to go outside again and like it was it's a bizarre place but in saying that if all the kids ever do is basketball it, they're very motivated there's not a lot of distractions so you can like run a good program and the kids just go in train go back to their dorms it's a very simple simple existence it's, it's hard it be, you always say if they're devoted you can make sense but if 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 a coach, if I was a division one athlete and the coach was recruiting me from USC and a coach was recruiting me from Kansas or a coach was recruiting me from Miami and Kansas, I don't know how the, the coach from Kansas would win out over the coach from Miami or, or uh, USC or UCLA when I've got equivalent standard facilities. Each university has got multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar athletic complex training facilities that I can access. It's but same. In Miami and in Los Angeles, I can have sun and beautiful women and hmm. going to the beach and yeah. Kansas. It's Kansas. There's two seasons. There's there's sun, summer and winter. And when you're on yeah. campus, you don't really experience an awful lot of summer because the semester ends in May and you don't come back until August. And so you miss yeah. the summertime. And really, it's it's winter begins in October and winter continues through April May. There's no fall and spring. It's just two seasons. You're right. It's not good. That's why we, we couldn't get out of there quick enough. I couldn't. I basically dragged my wife like we're going. <laughs> so you're in Texas now. Much, much mm-hmm. easier living in Dallas. There's more stuff to do in the Dallas general area. You've been involved in, in minor league cricket, major league cricket. And I want to focus more on the cricket journey now. So going back to Australia, you know, before we get to what led you to Texas and what you're doing now with USA Cricket and minor major league cricket as a strength and conditioning coach. So growing up in Australia from New South Wales originally, and you made your New South Wales country debut in January of 2006. You then got into the, you made your Pura Cup. Pura, Pura Cup is what it was called then. Instead yeah. of Sheffield Shield, Pura, Pura Milk Pura was milk. the sponsor. That was in 2008. But uh, you're from Newcastle, which from memory is about two hours, three hours north of Sydney. Yeah, you talked about the influences of rugby league and other sports you played growing up. I mean, what was life like growing up in regional New South Wales? And and what do you remember as your earliest cricket memories as to what drew you into cricket? Mm. I think I was very fortunate. I had a lot of good, I could keep coming back to this mentors. I had a lot of good adults around me that shaped and molded me and, you know, ping-ponging me in a good direction so I could always I was always a good athlete early on I was um, got selected for the Newcastle Knights junior rugby league program so I was my first dream was it to actually play for the Newcastle Knights and there's a guy no one on here might have heard of his name was Paul Harrigan he was the front row for the Newcastle Knights and he was the captain and he was this just tough tough man and he just led by example and if there's any big game, he just like, I'm going to do it. And you guys just come with me. And he just smash people. And I grew up watching that, this Newcastle Knights team that had never won a grand final 
and they won this grand final. They were the underdogs. This blue collar town, you know, everyone worked in the coal mines on the railway, you know, just the blue collar, you know, community and all this talent had come from Newcastle and we went up winning the grand final. And so a lot of that shaped and molded me like you're an underdog kind of thing, your toughness and mates. And so coming through rugby league, it was the same. I was always playing with men. I was always like the young kid in the team. So I learned my place in the team pretty early, but they were good men. They were really good people. And they taught me, you know, what my job was as a bowler, leading from the front, being a good human being, and just all those simple things that you shouldn't really be talking about, but they drilled it into me. And I was also lucky I had Gary Gilmore. Uh, he played at the same club I played for in Newcastle and I played with his son. So he was around and he'd, I'd always work with him at club practice. So I was really fortunate. A lot of the guys at Newcastle training, the rep practice that we'd have were all, you know, they were in their thirties at that point in experience. So I was fortunate to have a lot of good people around and played Newcastle, New South Wales country. And it wasn't until, so being in Newcastle, the only way you can make it professionally in Australia is you need to go to the capital city. In Newcastle, I had to move to Sydney or if you're in Queensland, you've got to go to Brisbane, Perth, whatever the capital is. So out of high school, I always wanted to go to Sydney and play, but I wanted to make sure I had a big season in New South Wales country to establish a name for myself as a fast bowler and just develop a bit more. And so I waited until I was 21. So I played a couple more seasons in the country playing for, so there's a few different, uh, the people I played with, they're like, you can either go to Sydney and play second grade, or you can play here, open the bowling for Newcastle, New South Wales country, play New South Wales country Colts and play hard cricket and, you know, really challenge yourself, but play with men who have been around a lot. And then when the time's right, like when you're, hitting the straps like then get to Sydney and so that was the approach I took and I had a big season I had a lot of phone calls people want me to get to Sydney and it was 21 and Billy Anderson there at Randwick Petersham they rang me and said can you come to Sydney do you want to come down and play for us at the same time I had multiple clubs want me to go and play for them and end up picking Randwick Petersham the president's Mike Whitney so I was like well that's good he's a bowler he's got that mindset mentality that I want to learn from Billy Anderson and the captain was Simon Kadich. So he was obviously the captain for New South Wales and played for Randwick. And they also had Nathan Horitz, Usman Khawaja. So I was like, that looks like a good team to be around. If I play well with them, I'm around guys who are already part of the system. So I picked them and I remember Billy had organized for me to just go netball at New South Wales. No one knew me. I rocked up and had a beard, this kid from the country. So I was big and strapping and looked like I was a rugby league player in first session I just bowled like fast bowling quicker than nearly everyone at training it was a full training session so back then training was awesome it was Brett Lee Bracken Stuart Clark Haddon Watson Michael Clark Kadich Jakes McGill everyone plus then so that was all the guys who were playing for Australia then you had the actual New South Wales squad so then everyone in and training was unbelievable like it was unbelievable so every time you went to training it was like a selection like you being picked so everyone was everyone was bowling fast it was red hot practice and i remember my first practice i bowled bowled really well and everyone was like who's this guy 
who's this old guy from the country? I remember Usman. He always was like, you look like this 30-year-old that just came down from Newcastle. <laughs> and anyway, I got picked for second lap in that first weekend after that first like, couple of weeks of practice and played second 11 for the rest of the year. I was just playing grade cricket and I didn't debut until finish up. I was until just after Christmas. But when you say, I'm sorry, second 11, when you say second 11, you're talking about Randy Pete's second 11 or New South Wales second 11? New South Wales. Yeah. But you were being picked in the first grade for the Randy Pete's. Yeah. So I was open the bowling for the Randwick Petersham. So I went straight into first grade. So that was when the time was right. I didn't want to go to Sydney and play second grade. So I wanted to show that I'm good to go. I'll, I'll be, I'm the opening bowler. I'm going to slot straight in and open the bowling. Yeah. So that was my role with them. And then played second 11, every second 11 game got picked in. And then Simon Caddish was that captain. And the thought was, cause I was so, I was a little bit chubby. I wasn't fit. I was just explosive and I could bowl quick. They needed me to be, get fitter. And so they basically just, they ran me hard, got me fit, got more games under my belt. And then after Christmas, when I was more fitter, I was ready to play Sheffield Shield cricket. And so that was a good thing. There was this pathway for me that they were like, no, you're going to play, but we need you to get fit first and kind of earn it. So after Christmas, I played and it was awesome. It was pretty good. What was that? 2007, eight, I think. You're, yeah, you're, so your Pure Cup debut was February 2008 against Tasmania. Mm. That was in Hobart. Freezing and- cold. Another place where it's freezing cold. Freezing cold. <laughs> and uh, in that game, your first wicket, Travis Burt. I'll never forget that. Yep. Take us through it. It's funny. Like, just to set the... In grade cricket, I was doing really well. Like, I was confident, bowling quick. I was comfortable with what I was doing, but then you take yourself out of that and then you put play Sheffield Shield cricket. And it's just like, it's what you've been dreaming of for forever. And I was like, oh my God, this is overawing. Like, you've got Michael DiBenuto, Dan Mark, like all these people are playing. Bailey, Tim Payne was playing. So it was, a, it was kind of. A well, run through the rest of the list. So you've got, yeah, uh, George Bailey, Dan Marsh. You've got uh, Luke Butterworth, who never, I don't think he ever played for Australia, but he had a very, very good first class career. Yeah, he had yeah. one ex- outstanding season, but it was just at the wrong time where. There was a live gym at the mm. top. Uh, Brett Jeeves, Ben Hilfenhaus. So it's, it's a stacked lineup. And I, along you, alongside you, excuse me, New South Wales. So this is the New South Wales 11 that you cracked for your debut. Phil Jakes, Phil Hughes, Simon Caddish was the captain. Peter Forrest, who had a very lengthy first-class career. Bo Casson, Dominic Thornley, Usman Kawaja. Dan Smith was the wicketkeeper. Matthew Nicholson, Mark Cameron and Bert Cockley rounded at the 11. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that could be as good as an international 11. And here it is a, a state 11. So I came through the system when it was before there was this youth policy and Sheffield Shield was the thing. It was the main product in like Australian domestic cricket. There was no big bash. T20 cricket wasn't around. So you basically travel, you'd play a 50 over Ryobi Cup. And then you'd have a day off and then play a four-day game. And so Sheffield Shield was, was red hot. Like it was, it was good cricket. And to crack into that team was, you felt like you were a part of something pretty big. And it was just a bit overawing. Like whatever it was, eight months before that, I was just playing country cricket. 
up in Newcastle. And then here I am sitting in the change dressing room as all these, you know, superstars. So you kind of get like those thoughts running through your head, like, oh my God, am I good enough for this? Am I really cut out for it? And so it took me a couple of games. Like, well, the first thing I remember was bowling to Divinudo. And most people I could bounce and they wouldn't hit it. I remember bouncing him and he just whacked it. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, that wasn't even that short. And he's pulled me through mid wicket. And I got hit a couple and it's just trying to feel comfortable in that environment. So that's that whole other thing of like your mental skills and sense of belonging. And it took me until the following season. So I played once, twice that season. Next season, I played, it was nearly most of the season. And I ended up being the leading wicket taker for New South Wales that season. That was my breakthrough year. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. Dream Cricket Store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements. Anything you need. Bats, helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys, and more. Go to dreamcricketstore.com now and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. Again, go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of that great offer today. This episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI accredited venue in the Lone Star State, located at 5515 McKeever Road, County Road 100 in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston. Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Musa also has two nursery grounds on the north side of the stadium boundary available for use. For more information, visit www.musastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster. Based in Florida, Crickbuster is an ICC-designated official travel agent for the 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. If you're a cricket fan living in the USA and you need match tickets, flights, hotels, stadium tours, or want to organize other sightseeing activities down under this October, Crickbuster is a one-stop shop for all of your touring needs. Visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And now, back to the episode. Take us, go, go back, though. Take us through the Travis Burt wicket, the first week in the Sheffield Shield. Walk us through that. Yeah, I think it was just because I hadn't gotten a wicket yet, obviously. And I was just trying to just, I'm always searching for wickets, always being super aggressive. And Kaddish was just like, just chill out and just hit the top of off. Just like, just chill out and bang enough balls in the same spot, things will happen. And so that was, I had to learn that pretty quickly. I just tried to back, bash back of a length. And he ended up, I think I was slightly reversing and just went away from him and edged it through. So it was good. It was good to get off the mark. Yeah, it was nice. But then a year later, you say it was that next season when you played a full season in 2008-2009 Sheffield Shields. And as you said, you were the leading wicket taker for New South Wales. 27 wickets at an average of 22. You were in the Looks like in the top 10, 10th in the wicket column, right along, tied for 10th with Dan Christian, ahead of Ben Hilton House. And top of the list that year was Brett Dory from Western Australia, 42 wickets at an average of 24. But some of the other guys in the top 10, Dirk Nannis with Victoria, Steve McGoffin, Brett Jeeves, James Hopes, 
Clint McKay. I think I only played seven games that, that year. Uh, you only played seven games. Yeah. Ryan Harris, Luke Butterworth again. So you're you're up there in some pretty esteemed company. And I've got a, a question alongside this. So solicited questions from the Patreon subscribers for anybody who's not yet a Patreon subscriber to the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. I encourage you to do so. And one of the features is you get to submit questions. So PJ Goodhalls, who you got a chance to meet in Texas during the MLC Challenge. So PJ loved getting a chance to interact with you, Bert. He spent a significant amount of time talking with you and he he, he didn't ask all his questions. He's got a few more he wanted to send across. (laughs) Yeah. So he says, this is the first one. You played grade cricket in Sydney, arguably the strongest club cricket setup in the world. In your opinion, what makes Sydney grade cricket so strong and what does USA need to do to get a similar setup in its biggest cricketing centers? Is it a case of having proper clubs with multiple teams at each club or is it a culture thing? And I know you touched on this a little bit about how you want the structures in the U.S. to change with third 11, second 11, first 11. But yeah, how did, how did grade cricket in Sydney affect your ability to progress into the first 11 with New South Wales and some of the other opportunities you got in your career? Yeah, I think it's, it's club-based, but it's at, and actually there's Cricket Australia. And then under that is the States, New South Wales, Queensland, the branching off it. And then within New South Wales Cricket, then there's Newcastle Grade Cricket Association. And then there's Sydney Grade Cricket. But then Sydney Grade Cricket has a board. There's a board, there's a, um, a committee, and they run Sydney Grade Cricket. And then within, within that is then all the clubs, Ram McPetersham, East Cricket Club, Bankstown Cricket Club. And each club then has their own board, their own president, selection committee. So there's a lot of checks and balances from the top down. And it keeps everything in. As I said, there's checks and balances. The idea of having like just not one team that I just rock up and play with. You know, it could be 50-year-old and I'm playing Premier Division cricket, you know, that just doesn't happen in Sydney. You got to like, so the idea of I've got to earn my spot every week, I really like. Like I've got to keep competing and training and doing the right things to keep playing. So I love there's this process of accountability. So grade cricket, I'd love for that to happen here. First grade, second grade. But in reality, for that to happen, you would need all these independent leagues to come together. Let's say Dallas. Dallas could have an amazing Dallas Premier League cricket. And then you could have Frisco Cricket Club, McKinney Cricket Club, whatever. And then all the cricketers just then, I want to play for this club. I want to go play for this club. And then there's first, first team, second team, third team. There's a board, there's a selection committee, just like, as I said, like, that's all I know cricket as. But unfortunately, that's not the case here. How that happens, you'd need all these, all the owners of these leagues to basically just, in essence, like, be willing to combine with someone else and run a league together. So in your eyes, it's, it's not just necessarily the competitive aspects of grade cricket in Sydney that make it so good in producing players. You're indicating more the administrative side of it and how structured and, and streamlined yeah. it is administratively that you feel that that's what made it so strong and that's what's really missing in US cricket? Yeah, like I had to go to training. I was contracted and I had to still go to grade cricket twice a week. So I was a part of the club and they expected me to be there. You know, I wasn't better than the club. I wasn't bigger than the club. I was, I'm a part of this club. And so I'd still go to training every Tuesday, Thursday as a professional cricketer. I'd be there. I'd, if I didn't train, I'd still help all the youngsters and help out. I'd do whatever I had to do. Thursday nights was selection night. So you'd always go back to the club. 
everyone had to be there if you wanted to get picked. <laughs> so you had to go back to the club, selection meeting, they announce all the teams and then, you know, have a couple of beers, barbecue, and then you go play cricket that weekend. You felt like you were a part of something. And that's why I'm still closely connected to my clubs in Australia. And I'm, I still talk to everyone because I actually feel like I'm a part of something. And that legacy of the club, I was a small cog in that little wheel. And I'm proud of that where I'm not sure how many people generally feel that playing cricket here because there isn't this, you know, it's not like McKinney Creek club has been running for 80 years. Right. And won the Dallas premiership club championship, there's, there's nothing like, there's nothing to show. There's no legacy. No, there's no, who the player of who the best cricketer in Dallas is and how you rank that cricketer, you know, amongst their peers. Cause there is no, there's no ranking system of performances. It's just, I'll go play cricket on a hard wicket against a 50 year old and I whack 200 off 80 balls. <laughs> well, again, and it's, it's not just, it's, you know, it all funnels into each other. The, the, if the clubs do that individually, they recognize their own club language like that at the end of a season. And they've got their own club function ceremony where they recognize the club player of the year. Then that funnels into the league would start mm. to, you know, recognize the league player of the year. And you would have, you know, a plaque that, you know, you go to a location, whether it's a club or some sort of hall, whether it's the headquarters and mm. you see the, or the history, the historical mm. aspects of this, just from a basic functional standpoint, this stuff gets recorded yeah. and it's um, recognized and it's passed on through generations. And you do see that at certain clubs in the U.S., but it's very limited. And these are the legacy clubs. These are the clubs mm. in New York and Philadelphia who were, have been around for 100 plus years or in California, the Hollywood Cricket Club, something like that. It's been around for 80, 90 years. You do see that and stuff. Those kind of clubs do that, but it's very, very limited. And that was one of the biggest frustrations for me when I first started to get involved in Cricket America. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to get involved in cricket journalism was because I would go online to Cricket Info and specifically covering the U.S. national team. I look for records in terms of who's represented USA and who is the best player, you know, in the 90s or best player in the 2000s. And it was very hard to, like, classify or, or kind of streamline, well, who was yeah. the best player? You know, who is this guy who scored 197, SS Ned Carney, social Ned Carney. He scored yeah. 197 against Suriname in Florida in 2008. Who the hell is he? And mm. what what is the context of that? Is that the highest ever score? Yes, I found out later. But yeah. where does that place in U.S. cricket history? And basic information like that that i take for granted you know you go to the ku athletic department you can see yeah. where ochai agbaji this season where his season ranks in the annals of kansas basketball history you know how many all-americans you know mm -hmm. if, if he was an all-american this year first team all-american how many other all-americans there have been in kansas basketball history and where does this national championship team for kansas rank alongside the team back yeah. in 2008 and you know with mario chalmers and you know, other players, Paul Pierce and Danny Manning in, in the 80s when he won a national championship, all this stuff is recorded. Some of the most basic fundamental elements of history recording yeah. and documentation doesn't exist at national level, at regional level, at club level in the U.S. Mm. And that was one of my motivations for getting involved because, again, photography, not to like sound arrogant or toot my own horn here, but I've made photography almost a personal crusade of mine. I learned photography skills through my journalism major, but in the last decade of U.S. cricket, last 12 years of U.S. cricket history, there is arguably more photos and more things documented of U.S. players in the last 12 years than in the previous 100 years combined. 
And that was simply a function of my own frustration because yeah. I would go research and want to write articles about previous U.S. national teams and players. And I'd go online, I'd go research archives in, in various places, and I couldn't find photos of players. I couldn't yeah. find what uniforms USA wore, what they looked like, or what the players simply looked like, headshots, all this basic stuff. You can find headshots of Don Bradman and uh, yeah. you know Arthur Morris and you know Keith Miller and Alan Davidson yeah. and, and Richie Bennell when he was a player. All this basic historical wolf. documentation in yeah. Australia from the time of Bradman to before Bradman to 1877, the first session test, it's all documented. None of that documentation exists in American cricket. And it pissed me off so much that I said, I just said, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'll do it. It's <laughs> so funny that's, that. that's what got me started in covering U.S. cricket more than anything. The first time I ever um, walked into New South Wales cricket and New South Wales cricket, this is where this like legacy piece comes into it. How I'm being shaped and molded. Stuart Clark used to always say, New South Wales cricket is the best state, county, province in the world. We are the best cricketing state in the world. And we need to act and behave and play in a specific way of cricket because we are the best. But you'd walk into New South Wales cricket, the head office, and there was just like memorabilia everywhere. And you're just like, oh my God, these are my heroes. And you'd go into the change rooms at SCG. And as you walk in, there's the main room that you see on television. You go through the door. That's, there's a big table. You go through another room. It's like there's a physio area and then you go up on this um, step and there's just all the cubicles that the players sit in and where I was basically that's given your seat. You're not allowed to sit anywhere else. You know, there's Simon Kadich, that's his seat. And he's not giving that up until he's finished playing and then so forth and everyone that's their seats. And they've signed it. So Glenn McGrath's got his, and if Glenn McGrath ever came back in, that's his seat. You got to move his higher ranking. So then you got to find yourself another seat somewhere. But it was just this, I'm sitting in this room and I'm like, Don Bradman sat in this room. Like Keith Miller sat in this room. Jeff Thompson, it's the exact same. They looked at the same bricks, the same room. And there's things in that room that were there when they were there. And so you just feel, you, you actually feel it. You feel like you're a part of this, this thing that's bigger than yourself. And that's what I love so much about New South Wales cricket. There was this, whatever it was, the awe around New South Wales cricket was you felt it and you, you knew you were part of something pretty big, but here there, there isn't, I've, I haven't seen too much memorabilia of the USA teams through the various cricket world cup, four league, two stuff, three, two, you know, there, there isn't. And, and I guess until the day we actually get a head office somewhere or a training facility that, but it'd be still, you, you need the players to feel that they are a part of something bigger than themselves. And, you know, it's the USA. Like you, you speak to most cricket in the US isn't typical of most other USA sports. Most typical USA sports, like it's, you've made it. You've made it. You're playing for the USA. Cricket in the US at times I don't feel has that, that same, oh my God, I'm represent, representing the United States of America. I'm not sure if that same legacy piece exists. But to create that, like there needs to be this thing as a junior, there needs, you need, there needs to be this pathway of I'm transitioning into something that's like this USA cricket national team. And, you know, hopefully at some point in time where a full member, you know, could play in the World Cup, the Olympics. And then there's this pathway that 
is, is established and the kids can, the kids feel that there's something bigger than themselves. Just not, I keep saying this, like I played cricket on a hard wicket here in Dallas against a 50-year-old. I find that really hard to wrap my head around. But like I feel it, it is, like I'm very optimistic and positive about it all, like where it's going. I think people just need to be willing to change how they see and view cricket and need to be a bit, you know, adapt, be flexible with, you know, for the greater good of the game and to grow it and develop it and just not, oh, I'm happy with my piece of plot here and I'm just going to do this and I don't care about anything else. It's got to be a bit bigger than that. If this game really needs to grow and be prosperous in the country. We talked about the impact that grade cricket has had on your career. And you talked about, again, leading New South Wales in that 2008-2009 season. And that led into you going to the Champions League and getting the attention of Kings Eleven Punjab and going uh, to the IPL. You never got to take the field in the IPL, but you were part of the squad. Besides meeting your future wife, mm. what was the most memorable part of your experiences? Well... Funny thing, I'd actually go in the auction. I'd played, finished that season, had a good year, and I was like, I'm not going to get picked up in the IPL. Like, I'm not, no one knows me. I haven't done a whole lot. And my manager at the time, the guy who took me under his wing was Neil Maxwell, who's Brett Lee's manager at the time. And anyway, I got a call one day and he just rang me up and said, hey, Bert, just had Kings Levin ring me up and they, they want you. Are you keen? I'm like, Absolutely. Why are they ringing you about me? Like I didn't get put my name into the auction. And so that's how that happened and ended up, yeah, got picked for the Kings 11. That whole, that was in South Africa for that year. So the, I think there's some terrorist threats in India. There's an election on or something. And so it was moved to South Africa and it was, it was awesome. It was really good. We were based in Port, Port Elizabeth for our training camp. And then, you know, we just moved around the whole country the thing that what really stuck in my mind was the playing group that I was a part of. So my idol growing up was Brett Lee. So there was Brett Lee, Simon Kadic, Sangakara, Mahela Jaywatner, Ravi Bopara, Yuvraj Singh, Sri Sant, Sunny Sahel was there as well. Piyush Chawla. So it was just amazing. Same thing as New South Wales. You go to training and you're just looking around like, this is awesome. What am I doing here? So what I got out of it most was just, being around Brett, Brett Lee a lot and just picking his ear. I'd talk to him all the time about bowling, you know, mindsets, tactics. My, like my goal was I wanted to be like the fastest bowler. Like I wanted, I wanted to bowl 160. That was my dream. So I was like, I want to do it. And he, he, we'd talk bowling and actions and run-ups. And so I got a lot out of that, just that whole experience and seeing him just go about business. Um, so that was great for me, just as a young fast bowler at the time. India was unique and I loved. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. Like you, you would have been to India, I'm sure. It's nothing like Australia and, and the US. So it's humbling. It's a humbling experience. And just to see the population love you so much. Like in Australia, everyone's happy to tell you that you're a dickhead and how crap you are. Where in India, everyone, they love you. It's not just that. I I just culturally, I found this fascinating on my visit to India. Last time I would have been there would have been January 2014. And just again, seeing how 
the average person treats a cricketer and the obsession and the just the desire to like get up yeah. close and just literally you know just get up and touch and be in their presence when i was in australia in 2005 i was in melbourne during melbourne cup week i forget if i had a week off from school or i just decided no i'm taking a week off from school because it's the melbourne cup and this might be the only opportunity i'm ever here so i'm i'm going and so i decided i'm going for the entire week of melbourne cup week and i went to melbourne and this was also, the West Indies was touring Australia that year. It was 2005, so it was West Indies and South Africa toured. Those were the two touring teams. And it, they also had that World Eleven just after Australia lost the Ashes. Yeah. So they had the, the three one-days in Melbourne and the six-day Super Test in Sydney, which only went four days. But anyway, they had just finished the first test, I think. It was either just before or just after the first test in Brisbane, I want to say. There was um, a group of cricketers. I was in Crown Casino one night coming back from the racetrack and um i was at a blackjack table and just like cruising through crown casino on the casino floor there was adam gilchrist and like it looked like a chunk of would have been western australia teammates they didn't look like other australia players or else i would have recognized them and it didn't make sense why the australian team would have been there because again i think the test was just finished so gilly was there on a on a free night like either just after the test ended i'm assuming and it looked like it was with uh, a bunch of WA guys. And again, Crown Casino, popular place. You're on the casino floor. Like, Gilly's a recognizable guy at, at this point in history. And everybody left him alone. Yeah. Like, we all saw him. Everybody yeah. knew who Gilly was and the other guys who were there with him. And he's, you know, they're going up to a bar for a few minutes to get a drink. And then they're going to get the drinks and go wander on somewhere else on the casino floor. But it was just like the casino dealer at the blackjack table. I was that was like turns to his dealer at the next table and was like, "Hey, you see Gilly? Yeah, mate." Yeah. And then we, we all looked. We saw Gilly, and nobody nobody harassed him. Nobody was That's like, cool. "Oh my god!" You know, this is before <laughs> yeah. the era of selfies. Again, it's two thousand five, so it was like yeah. no, nobody's going to run up to him with a mobile phone and press selfie and all that nonsense. But nobody was you know harassing him for autographs. Nobody was harassing him like, "Oh, it's Gilly. I'm going to buy Gilly a drink, or I'm going to." give Gilly a thousand dollars in chips to have him come to my, you know, blackjack table and, or roulette table. And I want Gilly to stand next to me and play roulette with nobody did it. They just left him alone. So, yeah, oh, wonderful. Free to go about his business. And, yeah. and so just culturally, I just thought that was very, it was nice. Yeah, you said it, it was, it it was kind of cool and refreshing. And, and like, in you know, when in Rome do his throne too, I, I didn't, at the time I was like, Oh my God, this is like Adam Gilchrist. This is one of the greatest cricketers I've ever seen in, in my limited knowledge of cricket history to that point in time like gilly is like a huge yeah. deal but I, again i'm looking at everybody else and they're leaving him alone and i felt like i'll make a complete fool out of myself if i run up to him and i'm the one guy who's like oh my god gilly gilly like please like give me yeah. your autograph or like sign my shirt or please can i just touch you and never wash my hand again yeah. like i just thought it's, i don't want to i don't, don't want to do that just leave it be um, so yeah so just that experience transitioning from that kind of atmosphere yeah where cricketers can generally go about their daily lives and you know go, you can go into a supermarket and buy your own groceries and no one cares nobody cares yeah to then go to india well that's that's a whole other you go into a hotel and it's you're going in, in the bus and then it's just crowds and then in the hotel then there's also then all these supporters and it was really weird like i never got i was i didn't get bothered no one cared who I was, but they still asked for an autograph and thought I was someone important. So I was happy to just play along. But for people like Sachin and Yuvraj and just witnessing them go about it, like their daily lives was, 
like pretty Zentia was our team owner for the RPL and her existence was was constant. Everyone wanted a piece of retention. Everyone wanted a photo. Everyone wanted an autograph. She had bodyguards all the time. She'd have to like put a, a veil on and hide a face when we'd go out for dinner just so no one would recognize her, just so she'd have some peace. And I'm like, I don't get that. Like, I'm, It's a funny existence that in Australia, this is what I was saying before, no one cares. There's this tall poppy syndrome and no one cares. Like you, you walk down Bondi, I just lived up the road from Coogee Beach. And so down in Coogee, all the, most of the New South Wales guys live there, cricket, East Rugby League, everyone lives in this area. So you're always seeing athletes everywhere, but no one bothers them. You see them, you're like, oh, there's Brayton Astor, or there's Michael Clark. And no, one's, no one really cares. And it's nice. It is nice. You're not getting that in India. It's everyone's a piece of your time and a photo. And it is what it is. And you keep everyone happy. But I just, it was a very humbling experience over there. Like when my kids get older, you know, I want to do a trip back over there. And, you know, this is India. This is an existence for some people. There's a billion people and some kids will never be able to go to school or have a nice roof over their heads. And so that part of it really humbled me that I get to fly home on a big jet to a nice house and play sport for a living. But most of these kids will never get an education and go to schools and, so it was a unique environment. Segwaying from that, you talk about humbling, humbling experiences going to India is one, but also kind of the way your career ended, it was fairly abrupt to go from mm-hmm. getting recruited and signing with the IPL and that experience. After that, you played less than 10 professional matches after that happened. So mm-hmm. you went from being in the most popular league in the world that year, like you said, it was in South Africa to then all of a sudden having knee injuries and never really getting back to a position where you, you could perform the way you were able to when you were at your peak. And it was, yeah. it, it wasn't a gradual thing. Like I said, it was very, very sudden. So yeah. what about that shift from going to such a high to going to such a low not, not mm-hmm. that it happened, but again, the fact that it was just in a very rapid condensed space of time um, in terms of linear career statistics, what about that uh, was the hardest for you to be able to wrap your head around and, and adjust to? I think I was doing so well and I started to feel like I belonged. Like in the pe- in, there's a pecking order with the bowlers and you can see who's where. And I started to feel I was actually getting pretty close. I was bowling quicker than nearly everyone I was starting to get more consistent so I felt actually maybe I do belong here and I'm feeling good and you know being picked for Australia A and for Australia and you know I felt I'm not far away here like I'm moving up I'm moving up the ranks but then literally it was it was in that period I had a bulging disc but it was nothing it was nothing serious it was just a workload issue I'd had this huge season bowled more than I'd ever had my loads were high and then went to India. I went to the IPL, trying to bowl quick every session to impress, to play. And that's what brought on that injury. You know, I didn't really have an off season and then built up for the Australia A series. In that time, they tried to modify my action. That's, what, that, that's where the root of the issue started was when they tried to change my action. So in that period between the IPL and Australia A, they modified my action. When you say they, who's they? The bowling coaches at New South Wales. And it was a combination of people. There was, 
the medical staff at the time. Like I still, I'm not disgruntled at them. What I know now, and I think what we know now about bowling, I wouldn't do it. And I wish I was a bit more, I guess, strong-willed on the matter and not, you know, I disagreed, but because I was so new to the system, I didn't want to upset anyone. So you just play along with it. And so I wish I never changed my action because it was working. And that's what they basically like, here's a fast car and now I want to change the engine and make it slower. <laughs> that's what it felt like. And it's like, you didn't buy that. You know, you bought a, an aggressive fast bowler. And so I changed my action and I got picked for Australia. And I was like, oh, I don't feel good. Mentally, I don't feel good because I'm not bowling with my natural action. I'm still going through a modification. And so the action I'd changed to, I had to stay more side on, and but I couldn't hold it. So what I would do to create the levers to bowl quick, I'd throw my front arm out more and I'd rotate my, I'd counter rotate more and then I'd laterally, laterally flex more. So I put more stress on my back than I did before and ended up with a stress fracture just after that. So I went to, went, went for Australia, got picked for Australia, was about to debut, was on the team bus, we were about to go to the game. So I was giving the heads up, Bert, you're playing, like get yourself ready. We're on the bus. Team manager walks on and says, guys, the game's called off. It's too wet. The ground's done. Didn't play. That was the last game of the series. Flew back to Australia and played in a Roby Cup game. This would have been against who? India. And it was in Mumbai at the stadium that was just built. So it was 10 Dilkers home down. It was going to be, it was already sold out. And I was debuting and I'm like, how good is this? This is awesome. Didn't play. Didn't debut. Go back to Australia, play an aerobic cup game and ended up with a stress fracture in my back. That was in November. So I ended up missing the whole season. The whole year's gone. Modify my action again. Still keep going through these action modifications. And as I start to come back towards the back end of the season, the season was nearly over, but I was starting to come back. I tore my side out for six weeks, came back, tore it again, <laughs> out for more, 10 weeks this time to make sure it did heal. And at this point, I was super frustrated and angry at what had happened because I'd actually like, I was committed to what they wanted and I was trying to make it happen and trying to make changes to my action. And so I did it their way and I went away from what got me to being a professional cricketer in the first place. So what got me there, I now no longer was that same individual. I was this recreated fast bowler that was just now breaking down all the time. So I was frustrated that, well, I've done it your way now. Now I'm labeled this injury prone fast bowler when I never was before, but I'm doing it your way. But now I'm labeled an injury prone fast bowler. So I found that really difficult that I was doing it their way and I was complying. So I was disappointed with that whole, that whole thing and ended up getting to the point where after my second side strain, I said, I'm don't care what you guys want. I'm going, I'm doing this my way. I've done it your way for the last two years and I've had more injuries than I've ever had. So I went back to my old action, felt good and had to work myself back through grade cricket. And I was playing in a T20 game, played on a Saturday, felt really good. Got through like 15 overs. Sunday played in a T20 and I was like, I'm going to like, and the T20 cricket had just started. It wasn't the big bash at that point. It was just the T20. So New South Wales versus the other states. And during that time, Pat Cummins emerged, Hazelwood, Stark. And because I wasn't playing cricket, I didn't have a chance to like not unpick myself 
I was just by the product of being injured. I was just now falling down the pecking order. So I was just at this point, I was a head case. I was not in a good place because I was wanting to get back and play and get my spot back. And my first game, I just ran in so hard. I was ran in so fast trying to bowl quick. And I tried to bowl a bouncer and my leg hyperextended as I tried to bowl the bouncer and ruptured my ACL, tore my meniscus, needed a reconstruction of my knee. So got a hamstring graft, but that ended up getting infected. So was in out of hospital, ended up getting my graft removed. And I had no ACL for 10 weeks in my knee because my knee had to settle back down and they needed the infection to clear up. So I was pretty lucky that the doctor was saying that if they'd left it in, the staph infection could have got into my marrow in my bone and I could have lost my leg or it could have spread to my, my organs and I was in big trouble. So that to remove it. I was on antibiotics. I was in hospital for a while and lost a lot of weight. And then when that happened, that was 2010. I'd only been in the system for a couple of years, you know, two and a half years, three years. And in my head, I was like, I'm, my career's finished. I'm 25. You know, my career's over. There's no way I'm going to be able to run in and bowl a cricket ball again at, at any intensity with my leg, how it is. So I basically came to the point of like, my career's done. And I need to actually start thinking about a career option, like where am I going? But at the same time, I still had another two and a half years of my contract with New South Wales. So that was, I was fortunate. So in my head, I was, I'm going to use this contract. I'm going to see if I can get back and play again. So basically I just set up little goals for myself and thankfully I actually got back playing second 11 the following year. But it was, a, it was at the same time though, that, they released me off my contract, New South Wales. And they, they didn't want me to go anywhere. They said, we still want you to be part of the system. We just want to see you get your match fitness back and your body back so you can play again. But we, we need to see you actually fit again. And I didn't take that very well. Coming off contract, because I did everything what they wanted in the first place for the last however many years and ended up breaking my body because of it. So I was like, well, that's not really fair. You know, I've done it your way now. I'm, lost my job so i was like um i want a new start i need a new environment i've kind of i was unhappy with what took place so i moved to western australia and they didn't even they didn't ask me i just i left i moved over there i emailed my contact over and said i'm coming over all i ask is that can i just come and netball at western australian practice i'll move there i got myself a job as a personal trainer at a gym played local cricket and that's how that all started. So I moved to Western Australia. I was super motivated. I was super determined and ended up, did really well that year. The club I played at was Midland Guildford. I, I was the club cricketer for the, I got the club cricketer of the year award for the club. So did really well, took a heap of wickets, got picked into the Sheffield Shield team. And it was at the same time, Justin Langer came in as coach. So he just come back from Australia as batting coach took over the job as Western Australian coach as I just moved over there. And that was a big transition. It was, he was, he like changed the whole environment over there, which was really good. So I ended up played a couple of shield games, got upgraded to a contract, got another one year contract. And then that next year I um, played in a warm up game against England before that was the Ashes series that Mitch Johnson took pile of wickets. And so we played England in a warm up game at the Wacker and I landed awkwardly in the crease the foot mark. So England had bowled first and there was foot, the crease was a bit uneven. I landed awkwardly and 
retore my meniscus in my knee and that was it. I was done. And that was November. So start of the cricket season again. The season was done. I was on a one-year contract. I knew what was going to happen from my previous experience. And I had to have surgery on my knee again. And that was it. Finished the year off, got my knee right, did all the rehab and came off contract and then just started my sports science degree at Edith Cowan University and got into coaching. And I was only, I was what, 27, nearly 28. So it was, it was pretty difficult, to be honest, in the sense that everyone at that age, I should have been really, you know, honed my craft, um, fit, you know, a lot of experience, but I'd spent what the last four years of that just injured, coming, just doing rehab programs. And it was painful because I'm not doing what everyone else was doing. I'm doing rehab, modified training, I'm trying to change my bowling action. And it's not, it wasn't what I experienced for my first year and a half in the system, which was really fun. So it left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, how I finished. And I always felt that I'd never actually like fulfilled what my potential was, which is frustrating. But I'm also pretty thankful that I got to play cricket in the first place and playing professional cricket opened the world up to me to become a strength and conditioning coach, to work at you know, elite level sport. I've got to meet my wife from it in India. So there's a lot of positives that happened out of it. But if I be selfish, I never got to fulfill really or to have a real career playing lots of games to see what kind of cricket I could have ended up being. 14 games of cricket. Shield games doesn't really say a whole lot about what my potential could have been. What it does show is I was really, I was injury prone, <laughs> which is like the thing that does tarnish it is that I was, I had a lot of injuries rather than, you know, what kind of bowler I was. A couple more questions I have from PJ. And one of them is kind of related to this in the impact of injuries and just kind of overuse and in the context of US cricket and your experiences. But before I get to his questions, one more question I have for you. You, you talk about how it left a sour taste in your mouth, all these experiences. And it sounds mm. a little bit like you fell out of love with cricket. So I'm curious, mm. getting out of that environment and leaving Australia, going to Kansas with your wife, being in a place where, yeah, in Kansas, you're as far removed from a true professional cricket environment as you could probably be. be. Mm. Then what was it that made you... If, if you did indeed fall out of love with cricket or wanted to get away from it, just kind of separate yourself because of those bad feelings and that kind of how it affected you mm. and left you feeling, what made you fall back in love with cricket or want to be back in a cricket environment in the way that you are with mm. the USA set of not necessarily as a player, but contributing in a strength and conditioning and a coaching capacity? Yeah, I think well, what I wanted was my own experiences. like through what I went through, I'd hate for that to happen to someone else. So I wanted to, you know, once I finished playing, I did my sports science degree and got into coaching. So I was very particular with how I coached and the words I use, I'm never going to say to a kid, oh, you've got a mixed action and you you may end up with a back injury, but I'll do nothing for it. i do nothing for the kid to actually help him. So I wanted to get back into that elite level. I always wanted to coach in elite level cricket even though it's not in a playing capacity, but I wanted to coach and use all the experience that I'd, things that I'd learned and experienced to contribute back to the system, whether it's in a better way or not. We were never planning to move to the US. I was in Western Australia. I was running my own business, a strength and conditioning and cricket business. 
So I was a fast bowling coach at one of the private schools, Scotch College. I was a strength and conditioning coach at Guildford Grammar. And I'd also run my own strength and conditioning business out of the school after hours. So I was coaching as well as doing my sports science degree studying. Literally just as I graduated, we'd found out about her dad. And so we, that's when we moved. But my goal in Australia was just as I graduated from school, I wanted to get into one of the states, either Western Australia or one of the states around the country as a strength and conditioning coach. That never happened. We ended up moving. And the only place to be involved in cricket in the US is USA Cricket. So I ended up using my contacts to end up being through Wade Edwards and said, you know, I'm here. I'm an SNC coach, played cricket. Is there any way I could be of use to, to you guys and to help the players? And there was no SNC coach at the time. And so he said, yeah, we, we need some help. And that's how I got in. And it was just as a, uh, at that point, it was, there was nothing in it. I was just, I was doing a lot of the stuff for free. I was doing programs for free. I'd go on tours and only get paid if I went on tours. And it took a while before I actually started getting, I, got, I became on a, as a contractor. But what I love most now is actually like contributing to the system and helping young players. And there's a lot of good things that I'd experienced as a player that I try and replicate or that I've learned from people, my mentors. But then there's a lot of things that how I was used, I would never want to do again or to let another young kid go through that same experience. And like, I have a lot of like feelings about it. It's just the sense of like, if a young kid comes in, let's say a Rohan, Posna Pelly, good young quick. And I see him. And then one thing that coaches love to do is they love to like, that's my kid. That's my boy. And they love to own that kid. And they're like, look what I did. Look what I've created. So coaching, I'm not going to create a Burt Cockley model or what Burt Cockley thinks that Rohan should be. That's what I don't like in coaching, that Rohan's his own natural individual and he's got his own natural bowling action and characteristics and that's him. And you just tweak and modify and do whatever you got to do, but you're not going to recreate a fast bowler, which is what I went through and ended up going back to my old action. After all that, my biggest frustration, I went back to my old action and never had another injury. <laughs> so... So I went through this experiment for three and a half years that derailed my career when I didn't need to. Question from PJ. We, and we touched a little bit on this before as well in terms of overplaying of cricket and how it can potentially lead to burnout and the lack of exposure to other stuff. But PJ's question, USA is a 365 day a year cricket climate. You can always play. If you can't play in the Northern States, you can play in Texas or Florida or California. Due to this, many of the guys in the USA set up play a huge amount of matches. National team games, warm-up games, club matches, minor league cricket, and hosts of private T20 tournaments like the US Open or other events, Houston Open. I'm pretty sure some of our players play more T20 matches than anywhere else in the world. As a strength and conditioning coach, how do you think this affects some of our younger and older players across different skill sets? And would you like to see a fixed off-season or two months where there are no competitive matches and no private tournaments? Yes. Yes. I just don't think we have that ability yet. We can suggest things to the players and suggest, we advise you take this many months off, but until it's like a formalized program and there is a program, but when guys are properly under our control and you dictate when they can and can't do things and we're not quite there yet. So guys can do whatever they want 12 months of the year. And 
you know, so at this point, it's just a matter of like, we, we just need to suggest things, give them the education and resources around why they shouldn't be playing everything, why they need more time off or have some downtime. And then, you know, we've got to work through it that way. But at this point in time, like there is a little bit of an off season, but then it's not a full off season as you'd expect it to be. And then there's no real preseason either. So it's, it's, it's not like Australia. This is what it's, I'm shaped and molded by that, that system. We don't have that here. So people can be playing it 12 months of the year. But as I said, it's just, we just make suggestions. Please do this. Otherwise, in four months time, in the peak of a congested schedule, you're going to be flat, fatigued, injuries. And we don't have like huge stocks of cricketers or fast bowlers in particular to pick from. So if they follow along with that, and we're good. If not, worst case scenario, if we had like four, four bowls breakdown, we don't have like huge stocks that could just come up the ranks like that in the USA. So we haven't had that situation yet, but it's something that I always think about is like, we've got to mitigate any possibility of like a big cluster of our bowls breaking down. Thankfully we haven't had that, but that's what I think about as an SNC coach is like mitigating any type of long-term injuries without quicks. Then one final question from PJ Goodall's. You came so close to playing for Australia. Talked about it. You were on the team bus and you were going to get to take the field in Mumbai and then didn't happen and never happened after that. It's as close as you came. Now that you're in the U.S. and for people who don't know, you are now a U.S. citizen. So you are mm -hmm. eligible to play for USA. Congratulations on becoming an American, Bert. <laughs> Do you have any dreams of playing international cricket for USA? I did. I did. I still do. I made myself eligible last year, but I never heard any, anything back. <laughs> so after minor league, I, I was like, I'm keen. I'm keen. You were taking wickets for the Irving Mustangs, but I, I guess this highlights how good the fast bowling stocks are with Rusty Tron and Ali Khan and Sarvanesh Vulgar. You were yeah. not selected. You were deemed uh, surplus. And that's a, like, I don't mind. Like, I, was, I was really motivated in the sense that trying to, like it's this, what I came back from before just having mentors and leaders and experience. And I thought I could have something to offer. And I wasn't in a position where I was a full-time SNC coach. So it's a flexible environment in that I'm an SNC coach, but I'm not full-time. So I could, in this unique environment, do two things. And I was like, I'm ready. Hey, in, in the U.S. cricket sphere, you're killing two birds with one stone. They don't have to pay for an extra SNC coach on, on tour if they're picking a player who also serves that role. I know, I know, but nothing ever happened from it. I said I was keen. I'm open. That was it. All I heard was crickets. <laughs> the door is still open, though. You're still interested if it happens. You're, you're 36. You have the injuries, but sort of as a function of that, you don't have the mileage on your body compared to a lot of other 36-year-olds. Yeah. So played minor league last year, and it's funny how it came to be about, I wasn't even thinking about playing Corey Anderson asked me literally it was like a week or two before if I was keen to play I was like well I haven't bowled I haven't played a game of cricket in three years but I'm open and I was down in Houston with the under 19s and I borrowed um Rohan's spikes and I said you I just need to borrow these I need to go bowl a couple of overs and see what happens and I went out and bowled and bowled bowled good and I was like maybe I can play and 
I started bowling for the next couple of weeks and played that first game in Houston. Played for the Irving Mustangs and it was good. It was literally like I hadn't stopped playing. I was sore. I was really sore, but it, was, it just showed like there's this part of me that's still got this unfinished business and I never got to fulfill, you know, playing at elite level or international cricket. So through the mind, like I was like, um, maybe there is a little bit left there that I could see what I can do with. But yeah. What would it mean to you now as an American citizen? And what would it mean to your wife and her family just at being an American now? What would it mean to you to represent USA? Well, I think it'd be pretty cool. And I know it's a difficult environment because there's a lot of you know expats moving over. You know, there's not a whole lot of American born and raised in that team just yet. So there's that that I do think about that my original goal was to play for Australia. But I see it as something like, I live here now, I'm a citizen, you know, I'm a part of the system, contributing to the team, I think, and being a part of something. I always come back to this being part of something bigger than myself. And the idea of getting to a World Cup, contributing a part of that machine would, you know, would be really exciting. And like, I was super motivated post minor league last year. I was like, yep. I'm keen, but not, I'm not unhappy that nothing ever happened, but the idea of like being a part of something like that and getting the team up to that kind of level of cricket excited me. And we're going to get there. Like the bowling stocks are fine. Like they don't need me to come and play and they're in a good place. I just think long-term for this team, it's going to be really exciting with everything coming up and yeah, I'm excited by the future from. Well, never say never. <laughs> we'll see. happen, Bert. Especially yeah, the World Cup in Australia. You never Ooh. know. Favorite 11 time with Bert Cockley. 11 questions, cricket and non-cricket. You ready to rock and roll, Bert? Let's do it. Your favorite roommate on any cricket tour? Steve Smith. And why Steve Smith? Yeah, he just offers a lot. <laughs> he offers a lot. <laughs> Your favorite way to spend a 14-hour flight to or from Australia? Binge watch movies. Your favorite Australian sports moment in your lifetime? The Newcastle Knights winning the 97 grand final. Underdogs. Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had as a player or as a fan? I always say new, uh, the SCG um, just because of its historical... But I loved, I'm going to give you a couple, if that's okay. The SCG, because of its, this historical presence, Adelaide Oval for the lunches, and it's old as well, like the Sydney Creek Ground. And then the MCG was just overall, like it's just massive. Like you go to the MCG and you bowl, and the ball just like crack, and it just echoes through the stadium, and it's huge. And then you go back to the Sydney Creek Ground, and you're like, this looks like a great ground. <laughs> baby your favorite cricketer of all time Bretley why Bretley just fast fast aggressive just love everything about that the intensity of the run-up the aggressiveness bowling fast I love it I think I know where you're going to go with this one but I'll ask it anyway your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time Paul Harrigan no that's it's funny that not many people would hear about him 
you know, we typically go Muhammad Ali and but there's something about about him that I still he's a blue collar, you know, from the country, made it as a professional rugby league player, just everything that he stood for as a human being. He's a good person. He he was all about teammates and mateship and he led the team. And I, those traits I just love. I love that in a sportsman. And he for me just was the epitome. Your favorite place to eat out on tour away from home? I miss this from Australia is going to a good coffee shop and getting a good coffee and banana bread. Here you just go to Starbucks and you get crappy coffee. I miss going to down to Coogee Beach and there's a couple of really good coffee coffee shops and we just go get a coffee and a banana bread. I miss that. <laughs> Your favorite beverage of any kind? Espresso. Espresso. espresso how do you take your espresso Bert well I put a little bit of milk in this one but it's I basically have like three shots of coffee every every day two cups I have one for first when I get up a few more hours later and I, so I'm on my second one now yeah strong dash of milk your favorite pizza topping pineapple just pineapple not the ham and pineapple just the pineapple well as an ingredient I always go for like a meat lovers pizza and a barbecue sauce and pineapple. But the pineapple is what makes it the sweetness. I've got a sweet tooth. Your favorite movie of all time? Shawshank Redemption. Hope can kill a man, Bert, especially in US cricket. Hope is a dangerous, <laughs> hope is a dangerous thing, Bert. I like that. It's good. <laughs> Your favorite show to binge watch, whether it's on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Paramount Plus, any other streaming service or DVD box set. What's your go-to when you've got a lot of time to kill? I love documentaries. I'm actually like a, I love history, like World War One, Two, you know, the Roman conquests. The I love all that history through, you know, a thousand years ago or Napoleon and documentaries on that stuff. So. I'll, if, I, if we ever do a road trip, I'll listen to podcasts on like history. That'll be like a three or four hour podcast. And I just like zone out. And, so I love that stuff more so than TV shows. Fascinating. Is there any one particular subject within that sphere of war history, World War One, World War Two history, Roman history that really uh, is a favorite of yours? Well, Rome in particular is fascinating. This civilization that emerged and then and then just basically just not disappeared but fell apart so that whole conquering and of the world to me is amazing they just you know obviously it's not a great thing but just those conquests they went on and also then like Genghis Khan you know through through Mongolia and you know going into China and then going through going west just that whole thing you know, a thousand years ago on, on a horseback just is amazing. Like I just, I love trying to put myself in those shoes of those people in that time. And like, even like, even now with Ukraine, like here we are, like I'm middle of America, things are pretty good. The existence of some people in the country, like Ukraine, you know, they're fighting for their, you know, fighting for their country right now. And just, if you go back a thousand years, that's what it was like. Any country it was, you could be getting conquered at any time so we live in a pretty good time so i always like to you know think about the th how things were in the past and how good we how good we have it today and we're pretty lucky 
So for me, it's just like a bit of a reality check and um, just how good it is. And it is pretty good whether you're in Texas or you're in Kansas or anywhere else yeah. in certain parts of America. Bert Cockley, USA Cricket Strength and Conditioning Coach, who's also doing some work with Major League Cricket, Minor League Cricket. It's splashed right across his chest. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, show it again, Bert. There it is, Bert Cockley. Thank you so much for coming on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. I'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to say about your journey in cricket or anything else you want people to know about you that they might not know about you already from either listening to this last two hours or anything else they've come across you during the course of your career? Good question. Um, I just think I see the position. I mean, it's very fortunate. And it came through just pure luck moving to the US and being involved with USA Cricket with strength and conditioning. And now I'm branching out as well and helping out Major League Cricket with all their athletes. And I'm just in a fortunate position that in Australia, the SNC um, sports science medicine has been going on for decades. I'm essentially the first one on ground trying to create all this stuff with USA and Major League. So that excites me. So even though I'm not playing, like the idea of trying to create a system here in the US really excites me and we have the ability to have a system that's on par with like you know one day like the nba or the nfl and to be in a position that has that responsibility to help shape and mold thing it really excites me and i just hope that you know my own personal experiences in life and education can help set that stuff up and give the athletes you know what they need to play cricket at a high level to support them with all their training needs and just be a good resource for them. And then hopefully in one point in time, I'd love for it where we have a USA cricket head office with a high performance center and where we have the gym and just like what I grew up with in Australia. So right now we're obviously not there yet, but I, you know, I dream of a day where we've got through, you know, this period of time and we we're in a good place where we're, you know, fully fledged professional organization, full member, and we're competing with the likes of Australia, India, England. And it's just not, you know, in Australia, we'd go to America for a holiday, not for cricket. So I'd love for it to be like, oh, we're going to the America for the cricket summer, you know? And, but it'd be cool to look back and be like, I was a part of that early stages. You know, it was very rocky, but we made it. We set up a good system, you know, and, you know, we're competing with everyone else in the world. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm excited about. Oh, indeed. And definitely don't sell yourself short, Bert. You're doing pioneering work. Honest to God, the fact that you said it when you started to get involved, it was voluntary. There was nobody who was doing the things that you do. It just wasn't something that existed. It wasn't something that was really considered or thought of or deemed necessary. And now, after a couple of years, you're an integral part of the U.S. cricket national team structure and as you said branching out into major league cricket as well and playing a pivotal role and setting the foundation for generations to come i hear it regularly from the teenagers who are part of the u.s under 19 setup that they're so grateful to have you as somebody to be able to get advice from and not specifically the the bowling contributions and the advice that you give them in terms of a mentor in that specific capacity but a lot of the strength and conditioning and nutrition and other fitness aspects that they've just never been exposed to before. This is truly the first generation of USA under 19 players that's getting genuine strength and conditioning 
advice and guidance and you could say the same thing about the women's team and the men's teams too but the fact that the teenagers who are coming up going forward now hopefully you'll be a part of that process for the long haul and it's something that uh, I've had other guests come on who have been pioneers in their own regard and they hope that they're inspirations for other people to come after them whether it's umpires or players or coaches and hopefully Bert And five years, 10 years time, we'll be having people, we'll be interviewing who say the inspiration for them to become a strength and conditioning coach on the U.S. cricket scene was Bert Cockley. So you're making an impact, Bert. I have no doubt about it. I've heard it firsthand. And hopefully you continue to be a major part of the U.S. cricket ecosystem for many, many years to come. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) There you go, Bert Cockley, everybody. Thanks again, Bert, for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks again to Bert Cockley for coming on the podcast. And again, keep an eye out for Bert in season two of Minor League Cricket, the T20 franchise competition that's organized by Ace and Major League Cricket starts on Saturday, June 25th and runs for the next two months through the end of August. And Bert, again, will be a member of the Dallas Mustangs squad, which is captained by Corey Anderson, who Bert mentioned as the guy who basically roped him back in to playing cricket in the U.S., aside from his strength and conditioning duties. So former New Zealander and former New South Wales player teaming up together on the Dallas Mustangs, in addition to a whole lot of other talented players who are developed and coached by those guys locally, including Ali Sheikh, who was a former USA Under-19 player and was included in USA's squad for the series against Ireland in December. He didn't get to make his debut, but he got a senior team call. But there's an awful lot of talent in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, all part of the Dallas Mustangs. Again, now the Dallas Mustangs. They were the Irving Mustangs in the first season, but now the Dallas Mustangs going forward. So you can follow them in their journey throughout the summer on minorleaguecricket.com. I want to remind everybody, again, you can subscribe to the podcast on Patreon like Jason Gaddies and James Hayward and Daniel Beswick have done, and a whole lot of other people have done it, and I appreciate everybody's support who has become a Patreon subscriber, a patriot, I like to call them, and you can do that by going to patreon.com today. Everybody who contributes becomes a subscriber on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast through Patreon helps make every episode possible and i also want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to get the latest episodes on the podcast on the video version by going to youtube.com and subscribing to the stars and stripes cricket podcast page on youtube or the audio version on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, anchor fm and a whole lot of other of the usual podcasting platforms that's it for this episode i'm peter delapena reminding everybody god bless america And God bless American cricket.